is Bean to Barstool, a podcast that looks at the intersections of craft beer and craft chocolate. My name is David Nelson. I'm a professional beer writer and an advanced Cicerone and the creator and host of this show. The music for this episode is by my dear friend, indie folk musician Anna P.S. You can find out more about Anna's music in the show notes or at her website, annapsmusic.com. You can find links and information about our guests in the show notes as well. I hope you enjoy this episode of Bean to Barstool. Of all the trees for climbing, maple was always my favorite. By the time I turned nine, I had lived in Indiana, Florida, and Ohio, and each offered plenty of trees for my scrawny frame to scramble up, from the gnarly apple trees in our trailer park in Indiana to the sticky, resinous pine trees of the southern Atlantic coast of Florida. When we arrived in Ohio the summer after I turned eight, however, I discovered maple trees, and they felt made for climbing. They had even, well-spaced branches that started low enough to grab from the ground, relatively smooth bark that didn't hurt my hands but offered plenty of grip, and a dense canopy that made climbing feel like entering a hidden world. Summer afternoons would often find me in the very top branches of a 40-foot maple with a snack and a good book. I ate maple syrup on pancakes growing up like everyone else, but I didn't discover the incredible flavors maple trees give us until a trip to eastern upstate New York with a day trip into Vermont when I was 11. There I tried my first maple sugar candy, and I couldn't believe the depth of flavor, the comfort and richness that went far beyond stealing a nibble of brown sugar from our kitchen canister. Since then, I have loved the incredible flavor of this deciduous tree native to the American Midwest and Northeast and Southeastern Canada. In today's episode, we'll talk with brewers and chocolate makers who incorporate these flavors into their creations. I buy syrup from them and then I cook it down and that's when the vanilla gets added to it as well. Like the whole vanilla pods get cooked in the syrup as it's cooking down and then I strain out the pods right at the end and then let it crystallize and then chop it up. Have you ever had the opportunity to be involved with you know, maple tapping or anything like that? No, I, I remember seeing it as a kid. Um, there's a park near here where on one weekend a year, they kind of have the sugar shack open to everybody. So that's a deep memory of mine is just like watching that and smelling it and then thinking it was really cool that the forest just kind of <laughs> produced this thing that I could put on my waffles. And I still think I'm kind of just chasing some of those childhood moments, you know trying to bring them back a little bit. That's Hans Westerink, founder and chocolate maker at Violet Sky Chocolate in South Bend, Indiana. Violet Sky's Maple and Vanilla Bar has been one of my favorite bars since I first tasted it a couple years ago, balancing the acidity and mild astringency of its 77% Guatemalan cacao with the smooth, rich, soothing character of its inclusions. When I talked with all of today's guests, the nostalgia Hans mentioned came up over and over, Everyone had a memory to share about the flavor of maple, and that personal connection runs especially deep for Andy Conrad of Sandy Springs Brewing Company in the small town of Minerva in Northeast Ohio. Andy and his wife Amanda founded Sandy Springs on the main downtown street of this small town in 2017. Their lost gold cream ale takes its name from a local legend of retreating French soldiers who reportedly buried a fortune of gold 250 years ago. And their Meet Virginia Imperial Stout is named for an eccentric 77-year-old ordained minister who is one of their biggest fans. The brewery runs a rustic chic Airbnb above the taproom made cozy by warm brick and exposed wood beams. One of their eagerly awaited seasonal releases is Happy Sappy, a strong ale brewed with local maple sap and maple syrup sourced from elsewhere in Ohio. The sap is tapped from Andy's ancestral farm and is used entirely in place of water when brewing the beer. Listening to Andy talk about the beer, it's clear Happy Sappy is more to him than just a delicious drink. It's my family's farm. I'm the fifth generation there to gather sap on there. My daughter's the sixth. They did over 100 years ago. And then uh, when I was in high school in the mid-90s, my father started it up again. So that's when we were actually making maple syrup at that point. A lot of the trees that we still use are over 100 years old. And then um, my grandfather planted a whole orchard. So we're using a lot of those as well. So about how many trees are you, do you have there that you're working with? We used to tap uh, over 100. Now I think we tap probably closer to 50. We don't make maple syrup on the farm anymore. 
just because there's not enough family help and I don't have the time to do it. So we really gather sap for Happy Sappy because, you know, we, we brewed it at home and then the first year we opened, we tried it here again and uh, we really, really enjoyed it. We've been making that beer since 2008. You said you also add syrup. So that syrup then is from a, a different source rather than from yeah. your property? Yeah, now it is. The last two years it has been. I still get Ohio maple syrup, but it's just not from our property anymore. So. Sure. And you're adding the syrup during the boil or is that post-fermentation? I add it at, actually at knockout. Good deal. Uh, I, I wasn't going for so much of the maple syrup flavor. There's a lot of sweetness anyway because of the big uh, the starting gravity of it. And um, it ends up usually around 11%. So I've learned more, especially brewing commercially, how to uh, keep that from drying out so much. Maple syrup uh, and tree sap itself is sucrose, which, um, well, I guess that's broken down into glucose and fructose, but that glucose is really fermentable. Yeah. What is the original gravity of that sap when it comes out? Like how much sugar is actually in that? Uh, it's been anywhere around, uh, it's usually around three Play-Doh, three or four Play-Doh, uh, 10, 15, 10, 20. It depends on the time of year that it's gathered too. Uh, earlier on in season, it's a little stronger. Later on, it's it's a little less. And what time of year do you typically gather that? I try to get to the beginning of the season so that there's a little more sugar content. And that's usually early March. We did pretty much the first, second week of March is usually when we get enough warmth to, to do it. I got interested because when we were home brewing, our water and here at the brewery is not good really for brewing. So I learned pretty quickly that how important the water chemistry side of brewing is. And that really interested me in just using tree sap. And I never really got a profile or sent it in for a profile. It's interesting because I have to really adjust water profile and brewing salts and all of those things with our water. But this one, I don't touch at all. It's just straight maple sap and the pH is always perfect, which is just strange. Part of that has to do with the color of the beer too and the the, the buffer that's mm-hmm. naturally uh, with the grain. But uh, it, I always found that pretty remarkable that I literally 5.20 every time I brew it. It's, <laughs> it's like you were far. supposed to brew beer with it. <laughs> <laughs> I know. It's supposed to be used for beer, I guess. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. It's just getting ready to be transferred over the bright tank tomorrow and carbonated. And then it'll sit for another couple of weeks to kind of mellow out. And we usually release that mid-May. The last three years now, we've been putting, uh, filling a maple bourbon barrel with it as well. So there's there's a farm called Bliss in Michigan. They buy 18-year-old uh, bourbon barrels and fill them, let their maple syrup sit in there. And then when they empty it, then I get it. Andy used a few terms and brewing concepts there that are worth explaining for those who aren't familiar with them. Knockout refers to the end of the boil, when the heat source is turned off and the beer begins to cool. Adding a flavorful ingredient at this stage means there is less likelihood of its volatile aromatics being driven off like they might have been during the boil. The next major stage in the brewing process is fermentation, so adding maple syrup at knockout does mean that in the case of maple, the sugars will mostly or entirely be fermented out and won't leave behind much sweetness, rather than retaining their sweetness if they were added after fermentation. We talked about gravity, which just refers to the volume of fermentable sugar in the beer, and is measured either in degrees Plato or in specific gravity, which determines the liquid's weight relative to water. We also discussed pH, which measures the acidity or alkalinity of brewing water. Numbers in the low to mid fives are ideal for the vast majority of beer styles, and as Andy pointed out, his maple sap has ideal pH for the style he's brewing. I asked Andy to share more about the experience of tapping and gathering the sap from his family's property for brewing Happy Sappy. So you mentioned your property and we talked about the trees and all that. Give me a sense of kind of the scene when you're going out there to tap these trees. What is that space like, that moment like? It's always fun. You know, I have a a deep connection with the farm anyway. Um, For some reason, as a kid, I always did. Uh, So I, you know, I always feel like I can almost feel my ancestors out there when we go to gather. They've been doing it for so long. It's a, been a family tradition. Our family gets together, goes out and taps trees. Some people set out buckets. Some people tap. Some people put the spiles in the buckets. The last two years, it's been really fun because we've had regulars that come to the brewery a lot, really want to come out and help. So we, instead of having, you know, six or eight family members now, I think this year there was probably closer to 20 between staff members that want to help and uh, regulars at the brewery, uh, supporters. 
And so it's, it's been kind of turning more into like a big social gathering. You need to corral them into making the syrup again. I know. Yeah. <laughs> we have to do some adjustments to our uh, evaporator or the sugar camper where it's boiled down. That needs some work. That's kind of the main issue because he built it in 1995. So it's getting up there in age. So I imagine it's still pretty chilly out there and kind of cold from, from the end of winter when you're doing this. Yeah, it's uh, usually we'll set them out on the nicest day, you know, in the spring. So uh, 50 degree days or 40 degree days and sunshine. So it's not bad. And plus it's a good walk around the farm and uh, stay pretty warm that way. So, What is the signal to you that they're ready to be tapped? Is there a specific parameter that has to be met? We're, you're looking for a freeze and thaw cycle. Um, so it's been cold all through February and pretty much when it starts, you get those first sunny 50 degree days, you're liable to get a good run. It's kind of weird how it works when the weather warms up outside, the internal pressure of the tree and the wood are actually higher than the atmospheric pressure. And that's what drives the syrup out of the tree. So it's then how do you get it from there to the brewery? Well, we end up gathering every year about 270 gallons is what I'm looking for. And we haven't put out enough buckets lately. It usually takes me two days to gather it. So I'm looking for a good two-day uh, stretch where there's a warm cycle and it's real cold at night and it warms up the next day. And then I'm pretty much good to go. We have used the same gathering tank that we used around the farm. So that goes in a wagon, gets pulled around the farm by our tractor. And that holds about 125 gallons. And so once that's full, I can load that into our truck, bring it down to the brewery. And then with pumps and things like that, I can pump it into our HLT. So it's always kind of a tough time of year because I have to really fit that into the brewing schedule because that HLT has to be empty, Mm -hmm. uh, nothing in it. And I use, even though it's just water in there, I use hot water for everything, sanitizing and things like that, even if I'm not brewing uh, those days. So it's always, it's always kind of a headache trying to plan it, but it's worked out three years in a row. So (laughs) hopefully we can keep doing it that way. Yeah. So you've talked about this a little bit already with the, some of the flavor aspects, but kind of walk me through a brief summary of the finished profile of the beer. Well, it's dark amber in color. When you smell it, you can absolutely smell some spices to it. Uh, not necessarily as strong. I think the cinnamon and clove kind of uh, balance out with the malt. And then, you know, very low IBU. It's not real hoppy at all. Not real bitter either. Trying to make it as smooth as possible. Uh, not so boozy. A uh, little sweetness in the end, but a little bit of booziness as it warms up. The HLT Andy refers to there is the hot liquor tank, the large vessel that heats and holds water for a variety of steps and tasks during the brewing process. Draining this of water and replacing it with tree sap is a tedious process, but worth it for a beer that has so much meaning and memory behind it, which you can hear from Andy's final thoughts here. It tells uh, stories of our family history, uh, for one. Uh, absolutely I look back and look at our early, Amanda and I's early days of homebrewing, because that was probably our second or third shot at homebrewing. We thought, let's try using tree sap to see what happens and some maple syrup. Uh, So it tells that story. Every time we would tap it, we'd always sit on the front porch as homebrewers, that is, uh, sit on the front porch with my family, parents, and um, we'd each have small little glasses of it because, you know, it's always been in between about 11 and 14%. (laughs) And so we'd have small glasses, but we always enjoyed it so much. We'd say, I'm going to have another half and then I'm going to have another half. So <laughs> after quite a few halfers, you know, we were all uh, just having a good old time sitting on the right. front porch and looking out over the fields and stuff. So all those memories, you know, even yesterday uh, I was getting ready to transfer it and just the smell of it just automatically brings me right back to those, those homebrew days. Perhaps nowhere is maple more beloved than in the country who emblazons the tree's leaf on its national flag. In eastern Canada, maple is a treasure, and several Canadian bean-to-bar chocolate makers have incorporated the flavor of maple sugar into their bars. At Cantu Chocolate in the French-Canadian city of Montreal, Quebec, Maxime Simard and Elfie Maldonado tie together the story of their relationship in their bar made with maple sugar, maras fleur de sel, and Peruvian chuncho cacao. Their story is beautiful, and their enthusiasm and mutual affection are evident when talking with Elfie and Maxime for any amount of time. Here, Maxime starts out by telling that story and begins by explaining the origin of their company name. Cantu. It's the name of the national flower of Peru and Bolivia. Every time we go in different regions of Peru, 
uh, we see the, the Cantu flower. Uh, so since the, the first time we met, uh, since today, every time we are in Peru, it's, it's a flower that grows almost everywhere, but take its origin in the mountains near Cusco. And it's where we met. So that's why it's very, uh, it's very personal to, to us. Sure. Elfie and I, we met in 2007 in Peru, in Cusco. And uh, since the first moment we, uh, we met, it, it was uh, love at first sight. So we, we passed uh, the whole day uh, together. We, we went to restaurants, to museum, to... And then uh, at the first moment of our relation, we have like a dream of a project we can do together. But at that moment, it was very early. So uh, I went to, to live in Peru for one year and a half in 2008, 2009. Uh, then Elfie came here to study, and then it, we, we started to be a bit more serious in our search for uh, a project we wanted to do together. <clears throat> and since we are two foodies, uh, we wanted something related with food. We wanted something related with Peru, because we wanted to be in, in, in contact strongly with Peru. And then the first idea that, that, came, that came up was uh, coffee. But when we first tasted bean to bar chocolate, we said, oh, that's something different. We, because with coffee, we, we didn't have the same uh, feeling because uh, from one coffee to another, it's very close. Uh, sometimes the, the, the taste, it's uh, the subtle, it's very subtle. But in the chocolate, it's so evident from one variety to one another. It's so different, that the taste that you can reach. Uh, and also we, we found out that we had a lot of emotions eating chocolate. Not, uh, it was not the same uh, when we, was, we were drinking coffee. So, so it was love at first sight with chocolate too. Yeah. Yes, yes. <laughs> and you have to know that Elfie was not eating chocolate at all in Peru. Because uh, in Peru, uh, back in the time, now there's a few ch- uh, bean-to-bar makers. But back in the time, there was no uh, bean-to-bar makers. No. And uh, so the only product that were available were uh, mass industrial uh, chocolate. And uh, the, the best product you can find on the market was the lint. <laughs> and, and it was uh, four times the price in here. So it was not affordable for, for, for people uh, in Peru. So that's why she was not eating chocolate. So, but here when we, when we discovered the Bintu Bar, yeah, both of us were fell in love with with chocolate completely and then uh, from there we started to go and uh, uh, to search for for cacao uh, origins we we started to travel peru in the jungle in different uh, regions of peru Uh, it's where we discovered uh, very good cooperatives now we work with four different cooperatives and so you just work directly with them? You don't use any sort of intermediary like Uncommon Cacao or something like that? No, no, no. 100% of our cacao is bought directly to uh, cooperatives all the time. Yeah, it's, it's not only the cocoa beans, it's the heirloom cocoa beans from mm. Peru. Mm. So it's, uh, it's, uh, our mission is uh, preserve, preserve and promote the heirloom cacao from Peru in uh, this time, people uh, talk about uh, bio fair trade, bio fair trade, mm-hmm. but not talk about uh, varieties in danger. So, uh, our mission is uh, promote and, uh, and uh, preserve this kind of cacao. Yeah, looking at your site, it looked like you had a couple origins that I have not seen before. Yeah, Don Maximo, it, it's a friend we have in Peru. Uh, is owner of a six hectare uh, plantation. So that bar, the cacao comes only from his uh, plantation. So usually when we buy cacao, it comes from a small region, a small city. That's four or five families. Yeah, four or five, six families. But uh, in that case, it's from one person. He's a fermentator. Yes, he's doing everything. He's fermenting, (laughs) he's drying uh, he put in the bags uh, himself. It's, uh, it's a one-man show. <laughs> but so, so it's very precise. It's very... Uh, uh, he controls the quality completely. So so it's a limited edition. We'll have to continue. Yeah, it's small quantities every 
every year, I, I hope, because uh, this selection is uh, because Don Maximo developed the, the way to ferment, another way to ferment, another way to, to, to dry. And after when, when he uh, find the, 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 best, the best way to, to, to make uh, that, he, he learned to other people in the, in the cooperative. That is why he makes all by by himself. He's like an, an alchemist. No, he's uh, he's doing tests. <laughs> teacher, he's the, the teacher. The, the teacher. <laughs> so, because you discovered bean to bar chocolate making together, when you were starting to do this, was there a division of tasks that you both kind of gravitated toward, or did, was it just both of you doing everything and just kind of figuring it out as you went? Yes, just naturally we we divided the task uh, depending on our different uh, strengths and weaknesses. So, like Elfie, have a very very precise nose. <laughs> so uh, when we when we select cacao, she always have the last word. <laughs> when we when we roast, also usually she she at least she, she's doing the, the 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 testing when we have a new cacao. So, so she do the the, the different uh, roasting test profile uh, profile, and then uh, she select okay that one I think is the best. Then I confirm as okay I think you're right. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, on my side, I was a bit more on the the tempering, the the, the manipulations. Uh, I'm a bit more with uh, with my hands since the beginning. I was do the, doing the molding, the tempering. Yes. Mais comme ça, c'est ton point de vue, ton point de vue, c'est le point de vue des Canadiens. My point of view. <laughs> point of view. Uh-huh. Oh, yeah. Maxime have the point of view of uh, Canadian people because <laughs> my palate is Peruvian palate. <laughs> Maxime have another sensibility. Well, on that note, let's talk about the maple bar because that one seems to really bring together both of those things. You've got this north american canadian flavor with the maple and then you've got the peruvian cacao so talk to me a little bit about what led to that bar in particular and creating that idea we'll be right back hey everyone getting a cicerone certification is an amazing way to raise your beer knowledge and can be a game changer for your beer career But how are you supposed to find the time to prep and how are you supposed to know exactly what to study? Don't sweat because the Beer Scholar has you covered. Beer Scholar is a sponsor of Bean to Bar Stool, but I can tell you from personal experience years before I was doing this podcast how helpful the Beer Scholar study guides are. They offer efficient online courses for levels one and two that cover everything you need to know, tips and tricks for how to pass the exams, and include live weekly Zooms to taste and discuss classic beer styles together. They even have a new coaching program for the level three advanced Cicerone exam. I used the Beer Scholar Study Guide to pass my Level 2 exam many years ago. I wish the Level 3 had been around when I took that exam. I had to do it on my own. Wish their study guides had been available for that at the time. The vast majority of certified Cicerones in the world today have used Beer Scholar to help achieve the goal of passing that exam. If you are ready to take your beer career to the next level, visit thebeerscholar.com and check out their online courses. Yes, uh, because I really love, we both love maple, uh, but I'm, I'm a bit more sweet. Elfie uh, is a bit more salty. She likes a uh, uh, product with a bit of salt. So I think the, that bar is the, the combination of, of everything because it has a touch of salt. Uh, salt from Peru, from uh, near, uh, near Cusco as well. Uh, so it's a cacao from uh, Ayacucho region, the, the Chuncho, and uh, the, the maple from Canada. So I think that the maple uh, marries perfectly with, with the Chuncho. Yeah. And uh, I like so much the maple that uh, for me it was mandatory to have a, <laughs> to have a bar with maple. Uh, it's the, the symbol of Canada. It's uh, 
everybody here uh, loves maple and it's one of our our top uh, our top bars here in canada Mm -hmm. sure. so, uh, yeah, we needed a, a bar, a Canadian bar, but with uh, with come to her. The maple is our Canadian flag here. <laughs> it's your ambassador bar. Yeah, so. our ambassador. Yes, yes. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, Elfie, what is the profile of the cacao in that bar on its own? Ah, the chuncho is um, when we develop one bar, we decide who is the, the star. So in this bar, we, we wanted that the, the star uh, stay the maple. So chuncho is a, prof, uh, is a cacao, very nutty. So it's not, for example, the contrast is morbon. It's very aromatic, very uh, aromatic. Intense aromatic. But chuncho, chuncho have the, the nutty profile, but also have the, the, the spices notes, the spices like uh, cinnamon, like uh, a little bit of cardamom. It's a chocolate, it's a cacao beans that uh, remember fall. Here, when uh, the fall is, is something spicy, like a pumpkin pie, sure. like a banana pie. So it's, it's, I think it's, a, it's perfect for uh, maple because maple is like caramel. Yeah. The... I think it's both very comfortable products. Yeah, it's like, like, yeah. Because the, the chuncho is comfortable when you when you you're in front of a fire uh, in winter you're quiet you're calm uh, i think the the best cacao that fit that that mood is mm -hmm. the chuncho and also the the maple is very uh, comforting uh, uh, a very comforting sugar it's our best comforting bar yeah <laughs> that yeah, sounds yeah, great yeah. yeah that sounds perfect where do you get your maple sugar uh, here in the province of quebec it's a small uh, farm. Not, no, Erablier. Erablier, you say it's not a farm. It's maple it's, forest. It's like yeah, it's like a small uh, because here in Montreal there's a many not Montreal but in Quebec there's many um, farm like this. So one owner owns um, one, two, three hectare of uh, of forest, mm -hmm. and he goes in the forest. He he, uh, he put a little hole in the tree. Mm -hmm. with the tubes uh, some are very old-fashioned go with the, the bucket only but it's a lot of work and the others have uh, the small tubes so all the tubes bring the the water to the not the distillery but where they, they evaporate and then they convert that in, in maple syrup and after that in maple sugar I always end interviews by asking my guests what story their beer or chocolate is telling. And Elfie and Maxime's answer when I asked what story their maple bar is telling is the perfect encapsulation of their personalities. What story? Our are, love. Our love. Is, <laughs> our common love or love for our countries, for, uh, for, for Canada, for Peru. Yeah. Uh, and honorate Cusco because yeah. uh, we meet in Cusco in for us, is every ingredient is uh, is special because uh, after starting the company, the chuncho was our first cacao that we that we buy, and uh, marasal marasal is uh, because maras is a mine of salt, mm. so it's in Cusco. So for us, is is one place that uh, remember our uh, our uh, love when we. Yes. our first uh, our first <laughs> meeting and our first when we fell in love yes <laughs> our first moments together so because uh, when we met Elfie was going to Cusco to see the Machu Picchu for the first time mm -hmm. and she passed through that uh, mine of salt and me me too so when I was there I passed in that mine of salt to see mm -hmm. the Machu Picchu and after that uh, when I was in Peru for one year and a half, we were we went together to to see the the mine of salt, mm -hmm. and it's very special. It looked like uh, it's winter because it's on the on the side of a mountain, and it's all white, 
So you, you drive and everything is uh, green or brown and then you arrive here and it's all white. Yeah. So it's very special. Yeah, and my maple, maple is uh, is our present. Maple is Canada is our present. It's uh, is our home, uh, and we love maple. <laughs> maple is uh, is our sugar of every day. Cantu's maple bar is such a lovely and thoughtful balance between the cacao and maple, and it really does feel like it tells the story of Elfie and Maxime's meeting, their heritage, and, as Elfie said, their love. The maple isn't bold and aggressive, but rather a subtle but insistent accent to the nutty, almost fudgy cacao with notes of cinnamon and a beautiful, smooth texture. I can already tell this is going to become one of my new favorite bars. I recently spoke with another Canadian bean-to-bar chocolate maker from the maple capital of Ontario. Hummingbird Chocolate in Lanark County, Ontario was founded by Drew and Erica Gilmore. The Gilmores met while doing aid work in Afghanistan and moved into helping farmers there develop their agriculture techniques and gain access to markets to sell their goods. They began making chocolate after working in Haiti after that country's devastating earthquake in 2010 and meeting cacao farmers while there. They began researching the global cacao trade and learning about the ethical problems in cacao sourcing and opened in 2012. They source their beans through uncommon cacao, and in their maple bar, they use Ghana cacao for this bar with quintessentially Canadian flavors. So being in, in Lanark County, which is um, known as the uh, maple capital of Ontario, we knew that we had to use maple in our products. So we've tried it with a few different origins. A lot of the origins that we have are quite fruity. Uh, so a lot of the, the beans from Dominican Republic have you know, different types of, of fruity qualities to them, which is beautiful as a, a chocolate bar, but doesn't necessarily mesh well, we found, with the, with the maple. So we really wanted to find something that had a bit more of a, a classic chocolate flavor, a little bit more of those fudgy or nutty or caramelly notes. So the bean that we're using for that is Ghana. And so we did source that through Uncommon Cacao and through a, um, a cooperative that, that's working there. And I think it's a, a great story of, of hopefully some of the, the ways that cacao growing in West Africa will evolve over time. But it has a lot of, uh, a bit of a caramelly note to it already. And so I think that it works really well with the, with the maple sugar flavor. What percentage is that bar? This one is a 65%. Yeah, we found that it was a good amount to actually be able to taste the maple sugar while not being overly sweet. Uh, we did make it in a 70% version for a while, but we found that the, the maple wasn't quite highlighted enough. So we have added more maple sugar to that. So you mentioned that your county is the maple capital of Ontario. Tell me a little yeah. bit about the role of maple sugar, maple syrup in regional life and in the culinary traditions in your area. Uh, I don't think you can overstate how important maple is to the economy and just the, uh, the cultural identity, I think, of, of the area is really steeped in maple. And of course, we're in, well, we've just finished the, the maple harvest season for this year. You know, I think culturally, of course, it goes back to the native communities who, who've been here forever, um, who, who first started using maple syrup, of course. And then, you know, the family that we purchase our maple sugar from, Fulton, they're on, I think, their seventh generation of family members who are now uh, operating their farm and have some of the same maple trees for, you know, over 100 years now. I think just in, in our area, it's, it's like a holiday season, almost, maple season. I mean, everyone in the area drives out to a maple farm every year, except for, unfortunately, you know, it's been a bit harder this year and last year because of COVID, of course, to do that. But it's just part of the identity here, really, to go and visit the maple farm, watch the tapping, eat those pancake and sausage breakfast, have the, the maple taffy that's poured out on ice is like one of the one of the best tastes ever. Usually kind of end of February, it might start and runs through March, sometimes early April. I mean, it depends a lot, of course, on the weather. You need to have, it needs to be a little bit above freezing during the day, ideally, and then um, continue to, to be freezing overnight for the sap to run. So yeah, it depends very much on the weather. Well, you mentioned Fulton's that you're getting your maple from. Tell me a little bit more about that farm. 
Yeah, so I actually don't know how much land they have, but they have quite an elaborate system of, you know, not not anymore just tapping their trees with uh, pails, <laughs> of course, but quite an elaborate system of uh, piping between the trees that go into an evaporator. They sell maple syrup all over the world. I know they do quite a lot of exports to Japan, especially, and they have, you know, specific grades of maple syrup. There's the, the light syrup that tends to come uh, early in the run, and then the darker syrup that uh, is, is usually at the end, although I've heard recently that that can sometimes slip, and I think that's dependent on the weather, but not 100% sure about that. Maple sugar is going to be recognizable across the entire region, but is there a particular character, would you say, to the flavor near you? Is there kind of a terroir influence to your maple? I think that there is. I think what I've heard is that the lighter maple syrup, which runs earlier in the season, has a higher sugar content, which is easier to turn into granulated sugar um, because whenever it boils, it's less likely to just to actually granulate rather than turn into a, a brick. But some of that later syrup that is darker has uh, more minerals, a little bit more of a caramelized flavor to it. But it is a lot more tricky to uh, to actually turn in, into granules for the sugar. I think that part of the trick of adding the maple sugar into the chocolate is that cacao is such a strong flavor. Maple is a strong flavor. So it, it is just trying to make sure that they are complementing each other rather than really kind of fighting with each other. And what stage of that sugar production process are you using in the bar? So it can vary, but generally we do get the lighter maple sugar from the beginning, just because okay. it is easier to produce. And the big thing that we need to worry about with chocolate, of course, is just having a very low water content, because if you add anything that is very moist into, into cacao, it will just cease. So I imagine then when you're tasting this finished bar, there are a lot of images that come to mind because this is such a part of your region. Can you share what some of those images or memories are that when you get the chance to taste this bar? I don't know how much of it is just an association with maple, but it really does take me into a forest whenever I'm tasting that bar. I mean, I really just do feel like I'm, I'm in the middle of a, a maple forest every time I taste it. To me, what I love about it is it just represents so much of what Drew and I have tried to build with Hummingbird, trying to have both that impact with farmers in, in the countries that we're working with, um, but also bring it back home to Canada and, and combine really those, those two cultures as much as we can. I do think that the, the maple bar really tells the story of our company and that it is, it is just two ingredients. It's cacao from Ghana and it's maple from our neighbors who are, you know, just five miles up the road and taking the best ingredients that we can find from, you know, from two places that are to us and turning it into something delicious. We'll be right back. Hey everyone, Final Gravity Issue 4 is now available in the Bean to Barstool shop. This fourth issue of our zine telling intimate, human-centered stories from the world of beer is full of great articles, including Kate Power of Lady Justice Brewing talking about why she might be done with beer festivals, Ukrainian beer writer Lana Svetinkova writing about the Zeugel brewing tradition in Germany, UK writer Matthew Curtis talking about the blend of old and new in the Cascale tradition in Manchester, and many more. We believe passionately in this project, and if you believe the story of beer is ultimately a story about people and relationships, we think you'll love Final Gravity as well. You can order the new issue from our shop on beandabarstool.com, or you can also subscribe, including subscribing for your brewery tap room or break room, or you can subscribe and sign up to support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash beantobarstoolzines. Now, back to the episode. These neighborly stories came up again and again in my conversations, and that's a testament to the rural, small-scale nature of maple tapping. The source our next guest found for maple syrup is no exception. Humble Forager is a production brewery contract brewing their beers at Octopi Brewing in Wisconsin. 
Humble Forager is a sister brewery to Forager Brewing in Minneapolis, Minnesota, but that state's alcohol distribution laws prevent breweries from selling packaged beer directly to customers. So in order to can their beers, they opted to partner with Octopi to get their beer out to the masses. Humble Forager founder Austin Jevney has developed several beers using single-origin cacao from Chocolate Alchemy, receiving raw nibs and then roasting them in-house immediately before brewing. Sugar Shack Diaries is a 12% ABV imperial stout brewed with maple syrup, Mostra coffee, Ecuadorian cacao, and Mexican vanilla. I talked with Austin recently about his passion for good cacao and the story behind his use of maple in Sugar Shack Diaries. So Austin, you have worked with cacao in a number of different beers. Can you tell me why that ingredient in particular is so interesting for you? I love it for a lot of reasons. Uh, Kind of the first reason is directly related to what it does to the beer. Um, I think a lot of people think that cacao adds pretty much exclusively chocolate flavors to a beer, which it obviously does, but it also can add a bunch of other nuanced flavors that come from the variety of uh, cacao that you're using. And to me, one of the biggest things that it does is that we get out of our beers is it adds, adds a really nice layer of mouthfeel also to the beer. In kind of the chocolate world, people talk about mouthfeel and their different chocolate bars and stuff. And, and we can see that um, happening directly from a bunch of these different cacao nibs in our beers where we brew pretty, pretty thick stouts to begin with, but then you add that in there. And it kind of adds this uh, velvety kind of layer to it, which I I just love. I really enjoyed Sugar Shack Diaries in particular. And I saw that you had put on social media some of the information about the source for that from Costa Esmeraldas estate in Ecuador. Can you tell me a little bit about the selection process for that and how that relationship developed? Yeah, so we we work with a company called uh, Chocolate Alchemy for that particular sourcing. they have some really great relationships with uh, different farmers kind of all over the cacao growing regions of the world. And um, I know that um, they're paying very fair numbers for beans that they get. And a lot of that money is going directly back to the communities where uh, they're growing. And that has a huge part of like why we select uh, certain beans that we do is we want them to be uh, sustainably sourced and grown. feel very passionate about that aspect of, uh, of our ingredient sourcing. And uh, those beans were just like super, super tasty. When we brought them in and we roasted them uh, for kind of some test batches, we found that like that bean seemed to give off a flavor profile that I felt would go really well with kind of a coffee tone. And we were getting kind of this like mocha chocolatey kind of thing uh, coming out of those beans when we roasted them. Um, So we thought that they would go super well in like a kind of like a maple um, inspired mocha. So it's kind of a combination of the, the quality of the sourcing, the beans themselves, and then their flavor profile um, heading very well into the realm of, of kind of like the base beer idea anyways. How did you develop the concept for that beer? There's a lot of different things going into that. What went into that creation process? So we at our brew pub, our sister company at Forager, has a pretty cool relationship with a Amish family um, in Wisconsin that does uh, maple syruping and they've done it for over five decades now um, on this one little plot of land and they tap over 1800 trees Um, so when we first met uh, the Miller family we went up there and I got to go in at night into their sugar shack and them being Amish they don't have you know like flashlights or anything like that or electricity in it so uh, we pull up me and this other gentleman and we went into this area and he's like, oh, you can't take pictures of the, of the Amish themselves. And I didn't know a lot about their community, but we pulled up to it and there was just this building with sparks flying like 60 feet into the air. And it was this really beautiful setting out in like kind of this cold spring evening in Wisconsin. And we went inside and it was so foggy that you barely could see your hand in front of you because they didn't have like a venting system for it. And we walk in and we turned our phone flashlights on and we're walking through this misty room. And all of a sudden, this guy's two little Amish girls just kind of appear out of nowhere, sitting in a corner, just in the pitch black. And all of a sudden, one of his sons opens this this kind of large door to the fire pit feeding area of it and has just illuminated this whole place with this like really kind of beautiful, like 
orangish glow through the fog and it, it just kind of like inspired me to like be really into using their syrup because of their process for this and how much like love and energy their family puts into it that we started buying just their raw sap um, that we would bring back and actually brew beers with the sap um, in place of water at the uh, brew pub and we unfortunately aren't able to source enough sap to do that on the humble forager scale but we started making tons of maple beers and then we buy a whole bunch of syrup from him at the end of the year too and so we've really focused at the brew pub on making a lot of different maple beers um, based off of that relationship and how how cool that Amish family is and how great their product is so we really wanted to take their syrup um, and, and use it in a beer for humble foragers. And the label design of that was actually a photo I'd taken of their sugar shack or their maple syruping shack, as they call it, and gave it to our label artist. And I thought she did like a beautiful job of capturing kind of like that still snowy Wisconsin evening with like all the lights, but still this misty feel. And um, I really liked that beer too. I thought it turned out really good. So yeah, the inspiration really came from this experience I had, like meeting the Miller family and wanting to um, kind of expose our customers to their beautiful products and their beautiful land. So does the Miller family taste the beer? Uh, they do they not. not. <laughs> yeah, they don't drink, but um, they have some neighbors who, who do. Alan actually does not have a phone. So he goes down to his neighbor's house to get into contact with me. So I call his neighbor. He like leaves him a little note. And then every couple of days he goes down there and checks the notes he has and uh, does all that sort of stuff. So it's kind of an interesting way to communicate, but he always shares those beers with the neighbors who do actually like imbibe a little bit. And um, sure. we've heard mixed results because I think uh, being in, in the small town farmland of Wisconsin, you've got a lot of people who have never experienced a beer like that and don't really consider that beer um but then some people think it's really really incredible and are excited to have had something that they didn't know existed before we wanted it to be a very sweet beer which it ended up being because we put a i think a total of like uh, 45 gallons of maple syrup in post fermentation so that it would have that flavor yeah so then um it's flash pasteurized so that we you know, it's, it's not going to uh, ferment out in the can, which is a, a nice thing to have on the larger scale breweries. So we threw uh, maple syrup into the boil also during the Whirlpool um, addition, but most of that flavor gets lost. Um, it was just kind of like we wanted it to be fully used throughout the whole process in there. So instead of adding like uh, a different sugar, which we don't really like to do, um, there's a couple beers we've had to add like a little bit of uh, like Belgian candy sugar, brown sugar, things like that. Um, we've added some honey to different beers um, to boost ABVs at the end. For that beer, we chose maple syrup as the as the sugar source. And then, yeah, added it post-fermentation as well. So it's interesting with that beer because you've got these tropical ingredients like cacao and coffee and vanilla working with something from the North Woods. You described like a snowy scene where you're getting the maple syrup. Talk to me about how the cacao and the coffee interacts with the local maple syrup that you're using. Yeah. So again, kind of like, it's like a con conceptual thing where at Humble Forger, we like to kind of take these flavors that are built into our lives in different avenues that aren't necessarily beer and try to come up with a way to make a beer taste like that using authentic ingredients. There's a lot of breweries doing that same concept, but I think a lot of them um, there's nothing wrong with this. It's just not my philosophy is they're using, you know, lab produced uh, flavors and extracts and dripping those in to create that kind of flavor profile where we want to do it more like we're actually going to cook you a pancake breakfast and serve you a nice cup of coffee. So a lot of those things are inspired by, you know, this, this culinary world that we live in. And um, I look to my chef friends and strangely enough, look through a lot of like, you know, French pastry books and all these other kind of avenues to find out the interaction for flavors. And for me, like cinnamon and vanilla, when I'm making pancakes for my five-year-old, always make it in there. You know, there's nothing better than a French press of coffee next to that with some fresh local maple syrup. Um, so those flavors were kind of normalized to me. And the reason that the cacao made it in there 
is kind of based on a childhood experience of having these pancakes. I grew up in Madison, Wisconsin, and there was a, a place called the Pancake House, not IHOP. It was called OHOP, the original Pancake House. And they had uh, chocolate chip pancakes, and we'd always walk there before our middle school classes with a bunch of friends on Fridays and, and get pancakes. And it kind of brought me back to that that moment in my life where I thought that you know we could incorporate it being a stout adding this like super silky smooth layer of chocolate to this other beer and that's kind of inspired by a breakfast experience of drinking coffee and you know having pancakes sugar shack diaries was one of my favorite beers of 2020 pouring thick and dark with a lovely espresso crema foam the beer brings us a deep woods flavor alchemy The glass teases aromas of burnt caramel, maple sugar candy, and bourbon maple syrup. The coffee doesn't really come through till the sip, and combines with the maple to taste like what I imagine a maple macchiato would taste like. The chocolate is a dark undercurrent running beneath it all. It's not hard to imagine the night scene Austin described, and tasting this beer I feel like I'm having the vicarious memory of being there. Humble Forager just released another maple beer called Warming Hut Memoirs, a pecan pie pastry stout brewed with roasted Georgia pecans, Corinthian cinnamon, Ugandan vanilla, and more of the Miller's Amish maple syrup. Numerous breweries release beers with maple flavors, but few as thoughtfully as Humble Forager. Scratch Brewing, whom you heard from in the last episode, brews a beer using multiple parts of the maple tree that is a fascinating flavor journey. Oxbow Brewing in Maine makes a smoked maple lager called Sap House, made with smoked malts and Maine maple syrup. The beer offers comforting flavors of damp wood smoke, hay, caramel, bacon, and maple that fit together beautifully. Maple is intimately tied to life in eastern North America, and you can hear from today's guests how evocative the smells and flavors of maple sugar and syrup can be. All of them had memories that tied the flavor of maple into stories of their lives. I encourage you to seek out one of these chocolates or beers and follow along with those memories through the tasting experience, letting your senses tell you part of the beautiful story of maple. You can learn more about Hans from Violet Sky Chocolate, Andy from Sandy Springs Brewing, Elfie and Maxime from Cantu Chocolate, Erica from Hummingbird Chocolate, and Austin from Humble Forager Brewing in the show notes. In the next episode of Bean to Barstool, we'll look at another sweetener full of fascinating nuances and nostalgic connections. Honey is growing in popularity in both brewing and chocolate making, and we'll talk with a chocolate maker and a brewer using this Buzzy Bee product in their creations, as well as an educator and a honey sommelier from the National Honey Board. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Bean to Barstool. Bean to Barstool.